Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Peter chapter 1. The fact that Peter says in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 1, that he had previously written these folks another letter, suggests to many scholars that 2 Peter was written to the same people as 1 Peter, and obviously by the same person. And I see no reason to dispute that. Some of the things Peter says in this letter seem to indicate that he was writing very near to the time of his death. A fragment of church tradition even suggests that 2 Peter served as the cover letter for the Gospel of Mark, which we believe Peter dictated to his secretary John Mark in the weeks and maybe even days before he was executed by the Emperor Nero. So, in a sense, this is Peter's dying effort to remind his people about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The emphasis in this letter is a little bit different than the emphasis we encountered in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, the apostle is trying to prepare his people for the inevitable experience of persecution. In 1 Peter, the threat is outside, and the emphasis is on courage, faithfulness, and focus. Here in 2 Peter, the threat is coming from the inside. The issue here is that a number of people within this congregation, or within the church in this region, have gone completely off the rails, theologically speaking. They are believing and teaching a false and deficient version of Christianity. Based on what Peter says in this letter, it seems that they were denying the return of the Lord and the prospect of final judgment, and they were commending an attitude that scholars often refer to as antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means no lawism. These were people who basically said that the important thing is to believe in Jesus, but after that, you can pretty much do whatever you like. They appear to have believed that holiness was impossible and that any call to holiness was basically just so much browbeating and petty legalism. After all, we're saved by grace. Therefore, what does it really matter how we live? Scholars suggest that these were likely immature people making improper application of some of the things they had misunderstood from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul did talk a lot in his letters about grace. He did sometimes say that the law was powerless, meaning powerless to save us. But of course, that doesn't mean that the law is useless. The law continues to point us in the direction of love for God and love for one another. And Peter is eager to help his people understand that so as to immunize them from this dangerous heresy. That's what this letter is about. And just as with 1 Peter, I suspect we will immediately sense the relevance of this epistle to the challenges of the present day. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's just pause here for a second and appreciate this very interesting introduction. Peter says to a group of people that they have obtained a faith 
of equal standing with ours through the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. A, a faith of equal standing with ours. That's an interesting expression. One that strongly suggests that by this point in the story of this church, it was at least predominantly Gentile in composition. It almost certainly had a Jewish foundation. We talked about that in the last series, but as was often the case in the first century, once an initial layer of Jews started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, set free from the demands of the Old Testament ritual law, the next group of people who came flooding into the church were typically Gentile God-fearers who had been living at the margins of the Jewish synagogue. It was the ritual law that had been keeping them away. But if salvation now is by the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, then those people are coming in. And come in they did, like a flood. So now Peter can speak to this church as if it were generally a Gentile church. But he wants them to know that the faith they have obtained is not a second-class faith. It is first-class all the way. There's no inside track for people of Jewish heritage. That little introduction provides a fascinating snapshot of the sorts of transitions and developments that were going on at this stage in the history of the church. All right, let's jump back into the meat of the letter. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, in terms of structure, Peter is doing what Peter typically does. He is moving consistently from indicatives to imperatives. He tells us what is true, and then he tells us what to do in light of what is true. So in verses 3 to 4, Peter is telling us what is true. He's building a grace foundation. And then in verses 5 to 7, he gives a series of commands and encouragements based on that foundation. So Thomas Schreiner, for example, says here, the indicative of God's gift precedes and undergirds the imperative that calls for human exertion. Close quote. That's exactly right. So here in verses 3 to 4, Peter is telling us about God's grace. And what he says is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Remember, the background here is that we've got some false teachers inside the church. And one of the false things that they're saying is that holiness is impossible. Just believe in Jesus and live however you please. Come, come to some sort of peace with your various sinful appetites and desires. You're never going to overcome them anyway. It's impossible. That's what they're saying. And Peter here is rebuking that. He's pushing back against that hard. He's saying, ours is not a weak faith. Ours is not a faith unable to overcome sin. Ours is the strong faith promised in the Old Testament, the new heart, new spirit kind of faith prophesied in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The prophets said that we would partake of the divine spirit as part of the future saving grace of God. And Peter is saying here, that is exactly what God has given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a strong faith, stronger even than temptation and sin. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of evangelicals today have no category for verses that begin with make every effort, but we're seeing that here. Peter tells these folks to make every effort to add to their faith certain behaviors or values. God laid the faith foundation in Christ. That was all grace. You didn't help at all. But now you need to partner with him in the work of sanctification, the work of growth. That's what Peter says. And now he lists seven behaviors that Christians ought to be pursuing in the grace that God supplies. Here are the areas, the seven areas. We'll go through them fairly briefly. First of all, he says to make every effort to add to your faith virtue. That's the word used by the ESV. Some of you will have a different translation. The Greek word underneath that is erite, which most immediately means manliness, but more generally has the sense of attractive moral character. Specifically here in a Christian context, the attractive moral character of Jesus, the perfect man. Commentator Michael Green says here that Peter is calling upon people to reflect something of the attractive character of Christ, for he was the man par excellence, the proper man, close quote. So the first thing you need to do if you're truly a Christian, if if you have received these foundational graces we've been talking about, is you need to begin trying really hard. You need to make every effort to behave like Jesus. Don't come to Jesus with your cultural understanding of what it means to be a man. Go to Jesus and look at who he was as a man and work back from there. Secondly, Peter says, to virtue, we must make every effort to add knowledge. I find that interesting. A lot of us separate character development from knowledge accumulation as if they're different things. And some people will even say, well, you know, you're doing a great job over there accumulating knowledge, but I'm working on my character. But in the Bible and in the Christian life, those are not separate things. Those are things that go together. We have to study the Bible to learn about Jesus. We can't go for coffee with Jesus. So we know him, we grow in our knowledge of him through study. So this weird separation between intellect and and character isn't as pronounced as so many people make it out to be. Now, certainly, there's a type of study that does not lead to character transformation. I don't think any of us are in favor of that. But there is, and there ought to be, and the, the main way Christians have over the centuries spoken about study and meditation is in such a way that it does lead to character transformation. So make every effort to do that kind of study. Grow in knowledge so as to live like Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Peter talks about self-control. Self-control here simply means not being dominated by your intrinsic desires. We all have intrinsic desires. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. Some lead in the direction of life and some lead in the direction of death. But a mature Christian knows which ones to kill and which ones to nurture, which ones to listen to and which ones to ignore. That is the essence of self-control. Fourthly, Peter says to self-control add steadfastness. Steadfastness basically means resilience. 
Peter talked about this a lot in his first epistle, probably because he remembered Jesus saying, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Steadfastness matters. It matters a lot. So you want to be working on adding that to your character as a Christian. Fifthly, Peter says to add to steadfastness godliness. The word Peter uses here means piety or reverence. It means to be aware of God's presence in every aspect of life. It means to fear the Lord. It means to have God in mind when you are acting and living and behaving in the world. Sixthly, he says, to godliness, add brotherly affection. The church is supposed to feel like a family. We're supposed to treat each other like brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, nieces and nephews. So how are you doing with that? I can tell you this, we need to do better. The church right now feels far more like a civil war than it does like an extended family. So I think we all need to be doing better in this particular area. Then lastly, Peter says, you've got to add to brotherly affection, love. Now, you might be wondering what the difference is between brotherly affection and love. The first word is the Greek word Philadelphia, which, of course, most of us know, city of brotherly love. Second word is agape, which was a word that had existed previously in the Greek language, but that came to bear special freight when it was picked up and adopted by the early Christians, came to mean roughly Jesus love, sacrificial love, need-meeting love, other-preferring love, love that goes first, love that seeks out, love that gives, love that dies so that others might live, that kind of love. Jesus said, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, close quote. So, Jesus love. That's what we're talking about here. Make every effort to add Jesus love to the good foundation of your faith. It's very important for you to do this, Peter says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, of course, you're going to do this, Peter says. Only a blind fool would fail to do this. So, you're going to do it. And in verse 10, he tells us why. You're going to do it because you are eager to confirm your call and election. Now, that's a tricky concept. Uh, it's an important concept. A lot of people think understanding verse 10 is actually the key to understanding this entire epistle. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, thought that. He said, it is true to say that the 10th verse is really the key verse of the whole epistle, that the object of the entire letter is to enable us to make our calling and election sure, closed quote. So let's pause and make sure we really understand what Peter is saying here. What does it mean to confirm our calling and election, which is something all true Christians are going to be eager to do, Peter says. Well, first of all, let's state what it doesn't mean. Peter isn't saying that we can make ourselves more saved by adding all the things that he's just talked about. He isn't saying that we have to add effort to grace in order to be saved. He makes that clear in the introduction. Look again at verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. All right, obtained is a past tense verb. It's an aorist in Greek, meaning that it's a completed fact. You already have a faith equal to mine by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is about what Jesus has already done. It's not about things that you will or will not do as an individual. So Peter's not a heretic. He's not teaching works righteousness. That's not what he means by confirming our call and election. All right. So what does he mean? The Greek says to make sure or certain, to make firm or stable. So think of it like this. The church, this, this church, all churches, but this church is like a tiny little shoot growing up out of the good soil of the gospel. The birth of that shoot was an absolute miracle of God's grace. They didn't help. They didn't do anything. Dead people aren't helpful. God did a little miracle. He brought dead things to life. He, he did it all. He prepared the soil. He sowed the seed. He gave it purchase in their formerly dead and rebellious hearts. That's a miracle. Thanks be to God. That was grace. No two ways about it. But now that tiny little shoot finds itself subject to some very nasty weather. It's growing up in a very turbulent, hostile world. There's some hail in the forecast. Some strong and destructive winds have already begun to blow. So Peter is telling them to add to this miracle of faith some very reasonable and prudent supports. Make every effort to hammer in some stakes, as it were, to make your salvation firm. Give yourself some things to hold on to. Provide for yourself some protection, some shelter from the storm. Do it all, of course, in the grace and strength that God supplies. Doing that will ensure your usefulness. It will contribute to your sense of assurance, and it will richly provide for your entrance into eternity. So that's why this matters. What's on the line here is your ministry, your assurance, and your reward. And Peter is very eager for them to preserve those things. So he says in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So I'm not going to be with you forever, Peter says. So I want to tell you these things now so that you can do what you need to do to ensure your faithfulness and fruitfulness over the long haul. Now, interestingly, I, I wonder if, if this lends some credence to that ancient tradition that suggests that Second Peter was a cover letter for the Gospel of Mark. Peter's saying, I'm doing everything I can here to remind you of what Jesus said and to remind you of how Jesus lived. I'm making every effort here, right to the end, right to the very moment when I put off this flesh. I'm making every effort so that even after I'm gone, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so Peter is eager to affirm to them, to, to describe and even defend to them his apostolic authority. Verse 16. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You could probably give this final paragraph in chapter 1 the title, Why You Should Listen to the Apostles. Remember, the background issue here is that false teachers have made their way into the church. There are now competing narratives and competing viewpoints. And so Peter is saying, the counsel I'm giving you is gold. It is reliable. It is apostolic. And you should listen to it. You should listen to it, first of all, because it is based on eyewitness testimony. That's what apostles were, fundamentally. The authorized eyewitness reporters of the essential events and significance of Jesus' life. When the apostles were looking to appoint a replacement for Judas, they made that criteria clear. They said the replacement would have to be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's Acts 1, 21-22. So you should listen to the apostles because they were eyewitnesses. And you should listen to the apostles. Secondly, Peter says, because what they say about Jesus corresponds perfectly to what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter is speaking there specifically of the transfiguration. He's been referring to that event in verses 17 to 18. We were on the mountain. We heard the voice, he says. And everything we heard and saw there perfectly conformed to the Old Testament prophecies. We were there when the dots were connected. So when we speak to you about what happened and what it means, we know exactly of what we speak. We know how it all fits together. We had front row seats when it was happening. Thomas Schreiner says here, The prophetic word of Scripture is made more sure by the transfiguration. For the transfiguration confirms the proper interpretation of Old Testament Scripture. That is, that there is a future coming of Christ for judgment and salvation. Close quote. So in street-level English, what Peter is saying is that you should listen to the apostles because our explication of Jesus matches perfectly the anticipation of Jesus contained within the Old Testament. Together, it makes a perfect frame and it shines the light brilliantly and gloriously on Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of the church. The Apostle Paul said that as well. He said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2, 20 to 21. So Christ is the center. He's the cornerstone. He's the piece that all the other pieces have to connect to. He is the piece anticipated by the Old Testament prophets and explicated by the New Testament apostles. So if you want to be connected to the real Jesus, 
then you need to listen carefully to us, Peter says. If you don't have the Old Testament prophets and you don't have the New Testament apostles, then you probably are not worshiping the Christ of Scripture, the real Jesus. Thirdly, he says you should listen to the apostles because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, it's not like we just saw what happened to Jesus and interpreted those events however we saw fit, Peter says. No, the, the Holy Spirit of Jesus was coming back and forth from the ascended Christ in heaven to our hearts and minds, directing us in, in what to say and what to speak. Jesus said that would happen. Way back in John 16, verses 13 to 14. He said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's how we arrived at our interpretations, Peter says. The, the Holy Spirit was going back and forth from the throne of God, right, right to us in our speaking and writing. So who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? The people distorting the Old Testament and inventing a new Jesus, completely disconnected from the flow of the biblical narrative and conveniently justifying all their own out-of-control desires? Is, is that who you're going to listen to, the false prophets? Or are you going to listen to us? The apostles were eyewitnesses. They heard Jesus teach. They saw him raise the dead. They heard the voice on the mountain. They went into the empty tomb. The Jesus the apostles preach aligns perfectly with Old Testament prophecies. Because the same spirit that animated the Old Testament prophets was guiding and animating them. So you can trust the apostles. You can trust the gospel they preach. And you can trust the counsel that they give you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Oh,